the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's Wednesday, and I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is The Word to Stand On for Life, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions, questions about stuff going on in your life, questions about anything and everything that's on your heart. All you need to do is to provide us the phone call. You can dial 210-340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. That's 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com or you can use our free our Calvary Chapel mobile app. It's free. Um, if you are driving in your car, the safest way to call is to use the free KSLR mobile app. Just hit the Call Now banner at the top of the screen, and you will be connected directly to our studio producer. Hope you're having a great day tonight here at Calvary Chapel. I'm going to be teaching on Psalm 32. Uh, I think one of the most important psalms, uh, and when you pair it with its sort of sister psalm, Psalm 51, uh, an absolute treasure for uh, those of us who are Christians in the 21st century. Um, There's an awful lot there for all of us to consider. So tonight, Psalm 32, and obviously tomorrow will be Thursday, and Paula will be live in the studio uh, with me on the date day edition of the program, so you can get your questions ready for her. Let me go to some questions that we've got sent in while we wait your phone calls. I want to go back to the one that we ended with yesterday uh, on church leadership. Margaret sent it in, and I only had a, a little over a minute to do it, and, and I really couldn't get to it um, with any kind of detail, and I promised I would come back to it today. Uh, Margaret said, my question is about ch- church leadership. Should one man, the pastor, have all the control in a church? Um, Margaret, what I didn't have time to say yesterday was there's all kinds of disagreements about church leadership. Most of it, I think, comes from a misunderstanding of what the New Testament says about church leadership. Um, In the uh, New Testament, pastoral epistles, Paul talks about appointing elders, but the elder in that day and age was what we would call the pastor now. Uh, Philemon was a, an elder. We call him a pastor. Uh, house churches were springing up all over. The church was exploding, and they couldn't keep up with them. And, of course, they didn't have these huge buildings where people could gather together uh, under the leadership of one group of leaders. So when Paul says appoint elders in the churches, he's not talking about having multiple decision makers in a church. Each church was headed by uh, a pastor, another word that's often translated in the pastoral epistles is overseers. Um, that's the man that we call pastor. And, and there's the idea of congregational voting is, is ridiculously unbiblical. I don't even know why sometimes I have to defend it, but uh, I do get questions. 
Um, but the idea here is that there is a pastor put in charge by God. It's his calling. And then when that happens, when that happens, the uh, pastor receives vision from the Lord and, and the church walks that vision. Now, let me tell you why this is so important. Uh, churches are sort of like jigsaw puzzles. We're all a small piece of a much greater puzzle. And that means we all have our particular role. And the role that we have um, is to be faithful to the Lord. And then he ensures, by leading of the Spirit, he ensures that what we do is what he wants us to do. Every pastor, no matter where he is, uh, ought to be saying every day, Lord, what's the vision for our church? What do you want us to do? I think too many of us, we just do what other people do or what we've seen other people do or what we've seen that works in other churches. And since Jesus is the head of every church, it's the pastor's responsibility. So, okay, Lord, what's our role in your greater church body? Um, an example here, Margaret, is um, um, God's asked us to do things differently than, than he asks other churches. Uh, we don't take an offering. We don't let our needs be known. Um, we have them, to be sure, but but God said, I want you to trust me. He was preparing us for free school, for free doctor's office, for uh, a, a place where women could go and be safe. He was preparing us for a free restaurant that we're in the process of, of getting organized right now. Um, that's our role. and And since we do everything for free, this is a work of faith, and God uses us differently than he would use another church. He would give that other church a vision. Now, again, the problem is that too many pastors, um, they forget that Jesus is really the head of the church. Now, we know it intellectually, but practically speaking, we forget all about it. And we do what, what we want to do. And the church then becomes a reflection of who we are. And I think in many cases, Margaret, um, uh, pastor-led churches uh, are are sort of um, subverted by um, uh, charismatic people. Uh, they become sort of the, the, the end-all, be-all in a church. Uh, their egos are, are flattered. And I, I just I think what we have to do is going to remain really humble and open to hearing what the Lord has to say, following the direction God has given us, not reacting to what's going on in the world, not reacting to 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 uh, 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 whether or not people are coming, just, just being faithful to do what it is that we've been called to do. So, Margaret, I hope that gives you a little bit better picture of, of uh, what I'm, what I was talking about yesterday. Thank you very, very much for the the question. Let's go to a question that was sent in by Dewey. Uh, hello, Pastor Ron. I'm in the book of Numbers, chapters 22 to 25, and read about the king Balak sending for Balaam. I don't understand who Balaam is. Is he a believer of some sort of agent that God works with? I'm perplexed on this. Why did Balaam have King Balak set up seven altars and give burnt offerings three times when Balaam knew God was not going to help Balak against the Israelites? What can we learn for this account in the book of Numbers? You know, Dewey, I think everybody, um, uh, including yours truly, uh, was really perplexed um, when, when Balaam shows up on the scene. And he's called a prophet. That's, that's interesting. Balaam was not a Jew. Uh, Balaam was not a, a true prophet of God, um, but but Balaam was is called a prophet. And the reason Balaam is called a prophet is because he did speak for God on a couple of occasions when he tried to curse Israel. Certainly, that's not of God. God interrupted him, said, "No, you go tell them that I'm going to bless Israel." And so when he did that, he became a spokesman for God. Not not what we would call a sanctified spokesman, not somebody who belongs to him. There was nothing good about Balaam. Uh, he was a very powerful man. He had a reputation that was all over the, 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 the region that he lived in. And that's how Balak heard about him. And Balak was afraid of Israel. And he wanted this man, Balaam, who evidently was known for doing such things, to, to curse them and, and try as he might Balaam couldn't curse him. Now, here's what Balaam did. 
Balaam because he was promised a huge reward from King Balak. He wanted the money. He could name his price. And um, when he knew he couldn't go against what God said, he went behind the scenes to Balak and said, look, I can't curse them, but I can tell you how to make them curse themselves. And we know that he enticed them with pagan women in these extreme sexual rituals, which always ended in the worship of false gods. And of course, when Israel started worshiping false gods, they cursed themselves. So I think that's the source of the confusion. He was really a prophet insofar as he spoke accurately for God on those couple of occasions that we have record of in Numbers. But he wasn't a prophet of God. He was a false prophet. He wasn't a, a, a Jew. Um, he just was a bad guy. So I hope that makes sense to you, Dewey. But I appreciate it very, very much. He is a fascinating character in our Old Testament. Let's go to Reuben from Seguin on line one. Reuben, thanks for calling. You're on the air. Uh, God bless you, sir. Uh, I have a question. Um, okay, you know what I've been going through now going on nine years and I've asked God over and over and over again to heal me, but he doesn't. And I'm not I'm not upset. I'm not, you know, why, God, don't you do this? I, you know, I do this for you, and I, I'm not like that. And, and you know okay. that I'm not like that. I, I am content and happy that God has been with me and... Um, has given me the strength to go through everything that I've gone through and uh, still holding on, okay? But I have this question, and I don't know if it's the enemy that's, you know, trying to drop seeds of of, uh, disbelief or I don't know. But in John, because I'm reading John, the book of John, John 14, uh, verses 12 through 14, uh, um. You want me to read it for you, or are you, are you familiar with yeah. it, you know, in your mind? Yeah, I'm familiar with it, but read it for the audience. Okay, it says, very, and I'm reading out of the NIV, so it says, Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I have been doing, and they will do even greater things than these, because I am going to the Father. This is where I, I have the, not a problem, but the question. 13 and 14 says, and I will do whatever you ask in my name, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. So, and I, I, I don't want to say why. I get, yeah. Well, I understand. Now, why are my prayers not getting answered if God said I can ask him for anything, and I will do it? Yeah. I think there's, and there's I a couple of things. No, don't feel bad. That's one. One, it's it's natural human curiosity, um, but 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 I think most importantly, it's the devil who's who's going back to his oldest lie from the Garden of Eden. Did God really say? And um, um, that's just a battle that we're always going to have to fight. Now, a couple of things. Let me start with the twelfth verse. Uh, when Jesus said that you will do even greater things than these, because He's going to the Father, He's not talking about the quality of miracles. He's talking about the quantity of miracles, the quantity of work. Um, um, You know, Jesus left with 120 or so uh, believers uh, at his crucifixion um, and and then resurrection. Um, And and there was 3,000 men that were saved, plus women and children on the first day of the church. Another 5,000 men, plus women and children. Uh, just a few days later. So he was talking about quantity. We're going to see the Spirit of God move and just take over the world. Jesus was confined to about a 90-mile area of ground. And, and, uh, and of course, the gospel spread instantly like wildfire all over the world. So when he talks about doing greater things, he's not talking about we're going to be able to go heal lepers, or we're going to raise people from the dead, or we're going to cast out demons any better than he did. So that's not what's being spoken about here. And then he says, here's the result of that, the greater things. And I will do whatever you ask in my name 
so that the Son may bring glory to the Father. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. The phrase, in my name, repeated twice, once in verse 13 and once in verse 14, means in his will. We're not, Jesus isn't a formula. In the name of Jesus, amen, we say. And too many of us, we treat that like it's a lucky rabbit's foot or a formula. That's not what he's saying. We ask according to his will. And Reuben, whatever the reason God has, his will for you is not to have taken this difficult time from you. Uh, and and I can just, because I've, I've been uh, uh, talking to you for, for nine years, um, I've seen a marvelous work that God has done. And you know Jesus better today, and you love him more, and you trust him more, and you trust him longer now than you did when, when I first met you. So God's doing a great work, and that he didn't heal you, put you in pretty good company. The Apostle Paul asked God three times urgently to take the thorn of the flesh from him, and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. Jesus asked the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane to let this cup pass from him. And because that was not the will of the Father, um, um, the Father said, no, this cup cannot pass. You're going to have to drink it. Um, In my own personal life, Reuben, and you know me, uh, uh, I'm visually impaired. Um, I I miss reading uh, almost as much as I miss breathing. And... um, uh, I've asked God to heal me. I've got literally tens of thousands of people praying for me uh, daily over this issue. And, and I'm reminded of it all the time. And yet God has spoken to my heart about my vision. My grace is sufficient for you. So I can't I can't just say, okay, God, but in Jesus' name, fix my eyes. Because that's not his will. And I think the other thing we have to accept here, Reuben, is that it is not God's will for almost anybody to be healed miraculously. He does heal some. Some he heals through medical um, uh, procedures. And there are a few people who get healed miraculously. But when I say a few, I mean very, very, very few. Now, there's a lot of fakes and a lot of uh, uh, pretenders out there. But the reality is that hospitals are still filled with people who are getting sick and dying. Children are born with defects. All these things still happen, and and the human brain, with the help of Satan, wonders, well, why wouldn't God heal these people? Why wouldn't God want us to be well? Um, It's just not the normal method of operation for God, the Holy Spirit, in the world that we live in. Most people have to endure these kinds of difficulties, and, um, you know, Reuben, in this world, um, Jesus said, you will have tribulation. We all face difficult things. He also said it's required that every man given a trust by God must prove faithful. And Reuben, you've proved pretty faithful. You've hung in there. You've had moments. We all do. But you've proven pretty faithful. And the result, and you know this to be true, the result is that you love God more than you did nine years ago, way more, and you trust him way longer than you did. So, that's the answer to the question, Reuben, and I just want to um, commend you publicly for being so faithful. I mean, you've had, again, you had your ups and downs. Nine years ago, you were calling me and, and crying. Why is God letting this happen? You don't do that anymore. That's because you know him better, and you love him more than you ever did. Thank you, Reuben. I appreciate the question very, very much. Here is a question from our email inbox from Anthony. Uh, Hi, Pastor Ron. If you had family members or people who in the church have spread horrendous and hurtful lies about you, how did you handle it? If not, how does a Christian are we to handle it? Thank you. Anthony, when I read this question just before we went on the air, I laughed. My producer was here and I laughed because the answer to the question is I've had so many people spread hurtful lies about me. Anytime you're doing the work of God, anytime you're being faithful to what God has called you to do, using the gifts he's given you for his glory, there are going to be people who come against you. As Christians, we tell people that they're sinners. They need to be saved. They hate us for that. 
I have people over the years who I've had to correct. Uh, I've watched families break up because they didn't take the counsel. And we warn them. And when everything falls apart, well, they just get angry. And of course, they spread lies. They spread lies about the Apostle Paul. Certainly, they spread lies about Jesus. Anthony, they're going to spread lies about you. They're going to spread lies about me. That's just what happens. Jesus said they hated me. They're going to hate you. They insulted me. They're going to insult you. And I think we've got to understand that that's just part and parcel of faithfully serving Jesus Christ. So the way you handle it is simple. You know the truth. I don't worry anymore. Now, I'm I'm like you are, Anthony. I'm like everybody else, especially we Christians. We want to be loved by people. We love people. We want to be loved by people. But we can't let lies. God knows the truth. You know the truth. We can't let lies trip us up. So we take the thoughts captive. We make them obedient to Christ. I've had my heart broken more times than I can even remember over our 26 plus years here. And there were times when I would wonder, Lord, what did I do? I I didn't do what they said I'm doing. Lord, all I wanted to do is love them. I've been praying for them. You know my heart. You know what God's response to me was, Anthony? And this was really an eye-opener for me. In Jeremiah chapter 12, fifth verse, I think, he said, if you've run with men on foot and they've worn you out, how are you ever going to run with the horses? In other words, what he was telling me was to grow up. You knew people were going to come against you because you stand with me and you stand for me. So what we do, Anthony, is we simply trust Jesus. We pray for those people. We keep sharing Jesus with those people. We continue to remain consistent in the way we live our lives, demonstrating fruit of the Spirit. As hard as it is to do, we can't take it personal. It's not you they're speaking badly about. You're the object and it certainly feels personal. It's Jesus. And he will come near you. He will wrap his arms around you. And he'll say, it doesn't feel good, does it? And we'll say, no, it doesn't feel good, Lord. It's not fair. And then we remember the most unfair thing in history was Jesus being beaten for your sins, Anthony, and mine. So I hope that makes sense. And and then again, I'm not trying to be naive here. I understand how hurtful these things are. Um, But when they spread lies, you just remember their lies. Can I say one other thing, Anthony? This just works for me. I got to the place where when I was praying for those people, I could say this, Lord, praise God that the things that they say about me aren't as bad as the things that you know are true about me. hope that makes sense to you. God covers us and protects us. Good question. We've got just a couple of minutes left. Let me have time for one more question here. Um, Mark says, My wife does not follow or take correction well. I admit I've said things in the past with a tone, but mostly now I correct my wife in a loving way. Before she would say, It's how you say it, and, and, and now I try in a loving way but she still does not follow or handle correction well. She immediately becomes emotional and turns it around on my shortcomings. What advice and wisdom do you have in which I can be better? First, Mark, it sounds to me, and I'm not accusing you of anything here, uh, but it sounds to me like you and your wife aren't in the Word together. Most of those conversations will happen naturally, led by the Spirit, when you and your wife are in the Word together. So make sure you're scheduling time for you and your wife to be in the Bible together. You read a chapter to her. Let her read it back to you and talk about it. The Holy Spirit is going to bring these things up. In the past, you've said things with the tone. So every time she takes something the wrong way, 
to say, I'm, I'm really sorry that I used to say things with a tone, but you know I don't do that anymore. Pray, God will give you my heart for you. And all I want is for us to serve Jesus together. And then pray together, Mark, and do it regularly, not just when you're having a difficult time, but pray regularly together. When you do that, then God is going to strip away these layers away from, from both of you. And, and um, you know, you can talk. In these times in the Word, you can talk about emotions. Emotions are not reliable. Neither is it wise when you start pointing fingers at my shortcomings. I know about all my shortcomings, so does the Lord. But see, those conversations can happen naturally and in the power of the Spirit. But you've got to be doing what you have to do. Continue to pray for her. Continue to let her know that you're going to forgive her. At the same time, stand firm and just do the things you know that God will use. We'll come back on the other side of the break. 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. We'll be back in two minutes. Back to the word to stand on for life. We're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll-free 877-630-KSLR. Now, here's Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome back to the program. We have 30 minutes left for your live calls or questions. 340-9585. Mark, one other comment that I want to make. Uh, You started your question by saying, my wife does not follow or take correction well. Nobody does in the flesh. Nobody does in the flesh. But a husband and a wife who have agreed together to follow Jesus, they have to be able to correct one another. They've got to be able to sit down and talk about these things. As the spiritual leader in your home, you've got to figure out a way, and the way to do this is in, in, in conversation, through the Word, and in prayer, You've got to have a way that you can say to your wife and she can say to you, if you're, if you're in your flesh, you can't do that. You can't get angry. You can't say that about people. You can't, whatever the behavior is, because you love her and you're going to stand before God, you're to wash her in the water of the word. You've got to be able to have these conversations. So you need to take the initiative, Mark, to fix this. Tell her, I love you. I'm not being judgmental. I'm not talking to you with the tone anymore. I really need you to begin to trust my heart. I need you to pray about this. But I'm accountable to God when you are in the flesh to point it out. And then give her the freedom to do likewise. And when... You point it out under the power of the Holy Spirit, it's not going to say, well, but you did this or you did that. Remember, the Holy Spirit always looks in. The unholy spirit looks out. So, Mark, be in the word with your wife. There's just a supernatural thing that God does when husbands and wives, and I can't explain it other than you'll experience it if you do it. There is a, a knitting together of the heart between a husband and a wife when they're in the word together. It's just that straightforward. And I also believe that it can't happen any other way. So be in the Word. Take time in the morning before you go to work or before she goes to work. Make it a scheduled date. I'm going to read. We're going to read. You read to me. I'm going to read to you. And leave some time to talk about it. I know we live busy lives, but get to bed earlier and get up earlier if that's what you have to do. But that's how important it is because if we're not in the Word, if we're not spending time with the Lord in prayer, how can we expect Him to fix things? And the best you can do then is negotiate, and you've demonstrated in your question that negotiating between the two of you hasn't worked out that well. So Mark, thank you for that. Here's a question for Sydney. He says, when I ask God for wisdom, 
How will he reply, or how will I know it's him? Um, Sidney, again, I, I hate to sound like a broken record today, but, but unless you're a man of the word, um, you, you won't know whether the wisdom that you're getting is from God uh, or from you or from the enemy. We've got to be in the word. And, and the wisdom that God is going to give you almost always, and I use the word almost, almost always it's going to come from the word. We've got a book with God's wisdom in it. I'm teaching from the Psalms tonight. If every Christian who hears the Bible study tonight would do what we're told to do in that psalm, then we would have no problem with wisdom. We would have the lines of communication wide open between us and the Lord. So yes, keep asking God for wisdom. It says he'll give it generously, liberally, but you've got that wisdom in your lap. If you're not in the word, you're not going to know how to discern whether it's him speaking, you speaking, or the enemy shouting at you. And then I'm going to say this, and this is never a satisfactory answer, but when the Lord speaks to your heart, either in the Word or in those rare occasions when he'll speak something to your heart instead, you will just know it's him. And your question, how will I know it's him? I don't know how you'll know, but you'll know. And nobody will be able to convince you otherwise. So keep asking God for wisdom, but remember it comes from the Word of God. And the people who just are not really invested in their Bibles are are trying to get through life without the wisdom that God has available for all of us. Now, one other thing here, Sydney, you also have to be right with God. There can't be unconfessed sin in your life. You've got to be able to say, I'm, I'm in the will of God. You can't do your own thing and expect that God is going to give you wisdom. I mean, I know a lot of people that are doing what they want to do instead of what God wants them to do. And when they ask God questions and he's quiet, they wonder why. It's because you're not doing what God's, what you know he's already told you to do. So be obedient. Confess your sins. Genuine confession. And you'll know when God speaks to your heart. 340-9585. Here is a question from Joseph. In 1 John chapter 5, what is a sin leading to death? Joseph, these verses have caused so much angst um, in people's minds and hearts for a long time. Uh, What is a sin leading to death? Obviously, it's a sin that is so vile that the punishment, the consequence is death. And we're not talking about spiritual death. If you are a born-again Christian, your sins are covered. But there are times when people who are Christians are living willfully disobedient lives and they get to a point where the only answer, they haven't listened to the Holy Spirit knocking at the door of their heart, they haven't listened when the Word of God is is open and, and, and the Spirit is trying to convict them. They haven't listened when they go to church and hear somebody like me teaching a Bible study and the Holy Spirit saying, hey, this is for you, this is for you. And sometimes their hearts get so hard. And I say this for effect. I say it this way for effect. God takes them out. Well, why would a loving God take somebody out? Because he doesn't want you to get to a place where you're doing so much damage that your witness becomes so compromised that you can't function anymore. So there, there are deaths. First Corinthians, Paul talks about some had died because they were partaking of communion in an unworthy manner. Joseph, I'm going to go out on a limb here. I, I think I know a couple people who who were taken out by the Lord. Um, they, they, they were believers. Uh, but they turned so completely away from God and they were doing things that were so wrong and they were doing them willfully. Their hearts became so hard that God couldn't get their attention anymore. And in both cases that I'm speaking about that I know personally, both of these were men who died without any explanation. They died suddenly. They weren't unhealthy. They weren't sick. They didn't have a disease. They just died. 
So that Joseph is what a sin is is that, that leads to death. And uh, other than that, there's no other explanation for it. And we can't typically uh, know when that, that kind of sin or those uh, cumulative sins um, have been judged by God in that manner. Marcus said, uh, my question is about communion, open or closed, which is biblical. Um, Marcus, communion, and for the people that don't understand the difference, um, there are groups, Lutherans in particular, but, but some others, who have closed communions, and they believe that only people who adhere to their confession of the faith uh, are able to take communion. If I were to go to a Lutheran church and was there just visiting, even though I'm a believer, they wouldn't allow me to partake of communion because I'm not a member of the of of the, the of their um, denomination. Um, I think that's horrible. Communion should be open uh, to everybody who is a true believer in Christ. Um, um, so I obviously favor open communion. Um, I would never presume to tell somebody they're not a believer, they should be shut off from the Lord's table. I think that's quenching the spirit in the worst possible way. Um, you know, one of the things, Marcus, I do, our, our communion here is the first Sunday of every month. And I'm, um, I, I go to great lengths to let people know that communion is for believers only. Uh, I let them know that it's not healthy for them. It's not wise for them to partake of communion if they're not a believer, nor is it wise for a professing believer to take communion if they are living in willful, ongoing sin. Um, but but we don't make them take a test before we pass out the elements. That's now between them and God, and they will suffer the consequences or enjoy the blessings of coming to the ta- to the Lord's table. So uh, I think open communion among believers is best. Again, it's not our job um, to um, ask them questions. We just give them the information, and God deals with their free will, the choices they make. Here is a question from Anthony, a different Anthony from before. Uh, He wants to know, what's wrong with socialism if we're supposed to take care of the poor, orphans, and widows? Anthony, we who are Christians are supposed to take care of the poor, the orphans, and the widows. What's wrong with socialism is that those people want the government to do that. And that's not our business. Socialism is, at its very core, evil. Now, it sounds really good, and this is being peddled to our college students. You're sending your kids to college. You're paying your money that you earn through your capital, uh, um, um, capitalism investments, your, your hard work, your skill, your talent, and then you're paying for your children to be converted into being socialists, Marxists. Um, the problem is if you look at any socialist or communist country in the history of our world, The poor are the people that are taking care of the least. The poor, the orphans, and the widows, that's the responsibility of the church. And Anthony, I'm guessing that every church has benevolence ministries. We help a lot of people. Uh, We go a little bit overboard because we we never charge anybody for anything. And and, uh, I remember when my life fell apart, uh, many, many years ago, uh, a church that didn't even know me helped me out. And I didn't ask them. And um, that's what the body of Christ is supposed to do. But it is disingenuous to the extreme for you to say, well, I don't want to do it. The government should do it. And so I want a, a government that will take care of me and take care of everybody else, putting everybody in equal ground. Truth is, Anthony, if a man doesn't work, he shouldn't eat. And yet, socialism says, oh no, we'll make sure they eat. But there's no chance for advancement. There's no chance for improving our lives. Um, the other travesty of socialism, Marxism, is that the people at the top are the only ones who are living luxurious lives. They're the ones who are in control of the lives that are being crushed. So, Anthony, that's what's wrong with socialism. Um, 
If you want to take care of people, God bless you, and he will do so if you do it. But there's no reward at all for hoping that the government will do it so you don't have to. Remember, God doesn't speak to us about government, human governments, other than we're to obey them. Unless they conflict with the word of God, we're to obey them. But he expects us to take care of people. Because that's what love does. So, Anthony, I hope that makes sense to you. Greg says, Pastor Ron, if someone is a homosexual, a practicing homosexual, but say they believe in Jesus, should we consider them unbelievers? Um, Of course, Greg, we should consider them unbelievers. Remember that a Christian isn't a Christian because of what he or she says they believe. Jesus said, by their fruit you will know them. Um, uh, Galatians 5, 1 Corinthians 6, very clear. People that live this lifestyle, and this isn't the only lifestyle, there are others. But in response to your question, people that live homosexual lifestyles uh, will not inherit the kingdom of God. So yes, consider them unbelievers. I think one of the problems we have, Greg, is we immediately want to correct them in their lifestyle instead of just telling them about Jesus. I was living an ungodly lifestyle. In fact, my whole life was wicked and evil. And none of that changed until I met Jesus. I think too often, especially when it comes to these groups of people that are trying to shove their lifestyle down our throats and they frankly offend us, I think the line that we draw on the sand is, you've got to stop doing this. Well, they can't do that. They don't. They, they identify. That's not the sin... It's who they are. And only Jesus can change that. So what's our message? We tell them God loves them. He loves them so much that he sent his son to die for their sins. His son died even for you if you will simply believe by faith. Look at the evidence. But I'm proclaiming to you the love of God for you. And when people receive Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit then comes in them, he's the one that begins to change their lifestyle. But don't believe for a moment that somebody who is living a godless life is actually a believer just because, well, I believe in Jesus. Many will say to him on that day, Lord, Lord, and he will say, depart from me, for I never knew you, you doer of iniquity. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Vanessa says, why don't you believe in healing when Isaiah 53 promises we will be healed because of Jesus' stripes? Vanessa, I don't believe in it because that's not what it says. By his stripes we are healed. Or by his wounds we are healed. That has nothing whatsoever to do with physical healing. See, sometimes we've got to go a little bit deeper than the word. The the individual word. By his stripes we are healed. Well, what disease, what condition did his stripes heal us from? It was from the disease of sin. Matthew 27 mentions it. Peter also mentions it. It's sin that we're healed from because of his stripes. Because he died, we live. But this has nothing whatsoever to do with the atonement of Jesus Christ. And it's, it, it, it's frankly, Vanessa, it's, it gets tiring to hear these... Um, false characterizations. Well, it says this, and I believe it, when that's not what it says at all. We've got to be work men, work women, rightly dividing the word. And Vanessa, you've been listening to too many prosperity teachers. Uh, They've been asking you for money. They've been telling you that all you have to do is believe something enough. God wants everybody to be healed. He didn't even answer his own son's prayers. He didn't answer the Apostle Paul's prayer for healing. And if you will just look all around you, you'll see that overwhelmingly most sick people don't get well miraculously. My sister one time, she said to me, well, Ronnie, I haven't been healed yet, but I'm claiming it by faith. And that's about as silly as it gets. So Vanessa, if you really wanted to know what Isaiah 53 says, you'd actually pick up the Bible and read it 
in context, go to the New Testament, Matthew and Peter, and see what they say. We can interpret the Old Testament according to the information we're given in the New Testament, and you'd find that healing, the atonement of Christ has nothing to do with promises of healing. Now, I want to say this to you, Vanessa, and to everybody else listening, because I always get people, I just don't believe, you don't have the faith to believe this, or you don't have the faith to believe that. Let me say that God still heals, miraculously, sometimes. But those are sign gifts. And you see miraculous healings in other parts of the world where there isn't so much light of Jesus Christ. But those signs point to Jesus. So we're not guaranteed healing at all. And if God still does heal, as he does occasionally, sometimes even miraculously, then all we can do is be grateful and receive the blessing and then spend the rest of our life serving him with all of our strength and with all of our heart. Here's an anonymous question. She says, I've had an abortion in the past, and now I've been saved. Will God forgive me? Anonymous, because you're saved, you're already forgiven. You know you had an abortion, but there's no record of that in heaven at all. No record of that in heaven at all. So you are completely forgiven. I'm grateful that you gave your heart to Jesus Christ. Don't let one more minute of guilt enter into your mind or your heart because of your sins that are so far from you, they're as far from you as east is from west. Sins thrown in the deepest, darkest ocean. My pastor many years ago, Pastor Chuck Smith, said, uh, asked, he was asked a, a question similar to this. And he said, you know what I think we ought to do with questions or with with thoughts that God, sins that God has thrown into the deepest, darkest ocean? And the the caller said, no, what? And he said, I think we ought to leave them at the bottom of that ocean. So you are already forgiven. Let me also say that in your future, now because you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you have a most remarkable reunion that you can look forward to in heaven. You're going to see your child and your child will see you and you will shower one another with love and there won't be a single mention or thought of what you did. And you will rejoice together in heaven over the goodness, the majesty of God. So the question isn't will God forgive you? The statement is, he already has. Thank you, Anonymous. Please take that deep into your heart. Here is, I've got four minutes. Here's another question, Anonymously. Pastor Ron, are apparitions of Mary real, like the Virgin of Guadalupe or Mary of Fatima? Um, those, those, those apparitions may be real, but they're not really Mary. Um, so so the, the answer is, is, yeah, they may be real, but if they are, they're demonic. Um, remember that the devil is a counterfeiter. He doesn't want people to come to Christ. And I know we love these stories and we love to think that, oh, these things are really true and they become such a part of our our, our superstitious soul that we, we're, we're sort of ingrained. But they're simply not true. Not, not They're not of God. Um, Mary, by the way, would be appalled. Read her Magnificat in the Gospel of Luke. Mary would be appalled that people worship her. She would be appalled that people think that she's coming to give them messages or she's coming to heal them. She would be appalled. She would say, Jesus is the one. Listen to him. Look for him. He's the worker of miracles. So I know that just irritated a whole bunch of people, but that's the way it is. The devil is a counterfeiter. Um, here is a question. I'll take it from Jacob. This will be the last one we get to today. 
Jacob says, I get confused about whether we should keep praying when we don't get an answer or just to believe and move on. Is it lack of faith to keep on praying for something? Jacob, it's not lack of faith. And Jesus told us uh, the, the, the parable of the persistent widow. Jesus said, uh, the, the, the explanation is given. He told them this to show them that they ought to keep praying and never give up. So um, it's not a lack of faith. I've heard people say that, well, I prayed. I don't, wanna, I don't want God to think I don't take him at his word. Um, faith prays. Faith is obedient. And so... We should keep praying always. Paula prayed for me for 13 years, Jacob. For 13 years. I'm grateful, so grateful to God that she didn't stop praying and give up because she wanted to hold on to some veneer of faith. So keep on praying always and don't give up. Um, I just wonder sometimes how many prayers that we've given up on just when we were getting to that place where God was about to answer those prayers. So very important, Jacob, we need to continue to pray always about these things. Well, that will do it for today. Let me remind you tonight, I'm going to be teaching Psalm 32. I cannot emphasize strongly enough how important uh, this psalm is for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ. So even if you can't be here, you can watch it at calvarysa.com. But even if you can't do that, you've got time right now to open your Bible and read. It's only 11 verses. You can read Psalm 32 four or five times. Let God wash over you with that magnificent psalm. Hey, I'll be back tomorrow. Paula will be live in studio on the date day edition of the program. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh, and I'll be back, Lord willing, tomorrow on AM 630 The Word. We'll see you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.